starting at verse 14. And we'll be looking at this story that runs, your, your Bible is probably broken up to where it sections the story out from verses 14 through verse 32. And last week we, we talked about these uh, mountaintop experiences and a specific mountaintop experience uh, we could say the, the quintessential mountaintop experience, the ultimate mountaintop experience, um, at least on this side of glory, for Peter, James, and John as they witness the transfiguration of Jesus, uh, seeing this glimpse of his divine glory. And we also considered in that the tension that's being drawn in the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels of this seeming paradox of these parallel pictures of Jesus being the divine, radiant Son of God and also God's suffering servant who will purposely head to the cross and lay down his life for the sin of humanity, and that includes me and you. Um, we reflected in this kind of the importance of such mountaintop experiences, that they're not meant to be bottled up or contained, right? Peter's like, let's build some tents, make, make this place permanent. That wasn't the idea. But they are still important because they, they do have this ability to help us sustain, to give us some grounding, to be able to look back and say, I know it was there. God was close. God has shown some clarity in my life. We can be very thankful that Jesus didn't remain up on the mountaintop, right? And Jesus didn't, doesn't remain, didn't remain in his glory, that he was willing to come down to the valley of the broken world, that he was willing to dwell among us. And, and again, as his disciples, if he is rabbi, if he is master, if he is Lord, then we say we follow in his footsteps, we don't look just to dwell in the glorious places, but we also look to come down and share life with people and minister the life of God with people in the broken valley of everyday life. That's, that's what it is to work out faith and mission in everyday common experiences. But this isn't always, always an easy task, and we'll see that this morning. The remaining nine disciples are, are on the ground level, and we'll see this morning that's what's happening on ground level couldn't really contrast much, in a much starker way than what happened on the mountaintop. Um, because as, as P Jesus and Peter and James and John come down to, right back into the fray of common life, we see how, how desperately the nine disciples that were without him missed him. And they enter right into this, this almost chaotic scene of, of failure, of dispute. And we have the life of a, of a troubled boy and the faith of his father seemingly hanging in the balance. Let's read Mark 9, verses 14 through 18. It says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. 
I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. So even before Jesus says a word, Mark tells us, and, and it's easy to overlook these things, Mark tells us that his presence began to change the environment. That, that as Jesus enters this chaotic an argumentative scene, his presence enters in, and we're told that, that the, the people ran to them and they are filled, overwhelmed with wonder. The contrast, again, couldn't be much greater thinking about what's going on with the nine. They're overwhelmed with, a, with wonder in the presence of the Lord Jesus, but that is such a stark contrast to the incompetence of what's going on with the disciples as they're unable to deliver this boy from the bondage of this powerful evil force. Now, now we can note that in such stories, a, a, lot, uh, a lot of modern um, Bible scholars start to question whether what's understood or presented in Jesus' day as demonic forces, whether they really can just be attributed to um, physical illness of the body and the mind. A lot of people read this story and say, this boy had epilepsy. Um, and, and again, I, I would not, I, I never uh, venture to say in such things that I'm an expert um, on these matters. But what I do know is that the Gospels themselves are very purposeful to distinguish between issues of the body and issues of a tormented spirit or an evil spirit or an unclean spirit that is affecting a person. Um, and, and again, you, as you walk through the Gospels, Jesus deals differently with people that are affected or afflicted of body or if they're afflicted by a demon. Um, also, you see people, the people that are told to be demonized, you see them respond differently to Jesus. As soon as Jesus usually, again, enters in, the demon responds. Sometimes that's vocally, what do you want with me, son of the living God? Are you going to throw me into the abyss? Sometimes it's what we see here as this boy was, uh, this demon caused this boy not to be able to hear, not to be able to speak. He has this violent reaction uh, to the Lord's presence. Now that's not to be said, like we, there's some things that are still mystery. Does that mean that someone possessed by a demon couldn't have had another specific physical ailment? Of course they could have. Does that mean that that, that that demon that's oppressing or possessing couldn't have presented as a specific spirit, uh, physical uh, ailment? Of course it could have. But the case, whatever the case, the point of the Gospels is that as Jesus enters into the physical problems of the world and to the spiritual problems of the world, he has authority over them all. He is the one that enters into both and can just speak into both and restore. And this boy's father wisely comes looking for Jesus, but Jesus isn't there, right? He's up on the mountaintop. That was part of the, the limitation that Jesus, the Son of God, purposely allowed himself to have as he walked the earth. That's, why, that's one of the reasons he says it's better for me to leave because then my spirit can be poured out amongst you, the Holy Spirit of the living God that indwells those who come to, to faith. But as he's walking on the earth, he's like one place, one time. So this guy comes looking for Jesus and he only finds the nine disciples. Well, the nine disciples, he asked them to deliver this boy. Should they have been able to do it? 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, and I believe the answer is yes. Um, in, in, if you go back to chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus gave them authority to cast out evil spirits. Yeah, Jesus gave them the authority. So there's this question that immediately comes up, like, well, what's going on here? Um, it's interesting that the father steps out. He testifies to their failure. He says that they weren't able, they couldn't do it. In the Greek, it literally means they weren't strong enough. That was the father's observation. These guys weren't strong enough to do it. They weren't strong enough to help. And it seems to have caused a scene. Man, that clock is messing me up. You don't realize, when I'm preaching, I do look, I do watch, so... But that clock is totally wrong, so I'm going to have to check my watch every once in a while. Um, it, caused, it caused a scene. There, there's, there's this dispute going on. And, and it seems, again, we've got to read between the lines a little bit. It says that the disciples are arguing with the teachers of the law, the, some of the religious leaders of the day. And it seems that they must have pounced on the opportunity. See what you can't do. Right? You ever have people... Gloat in your failure, <laughs> right? You ever have people gloat? See what you can't do? See how weak you actually are? See how dumb you actually are? See how you're not that spiritual? Who do you think you are? You know, right? So this is, seems like what they're doing. They're, they're questioning and, and uh, debating and probably trying to discredit the disciples and their rabbi. And we can certainly guess at this point, the disciples are probably doing what? Arguing back, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's because of this and this and this. And, you know, so they're, Jesus and Peter and James, uh, Peter, James and John come off the mountain, and this is what they come into. These guys arguing, a crowd is, has formed. But who does this leave on the sidelines? Yeah, the boy and the father. That's what religious infighting always does, right? That's what it always does. And Satan loves that. Keep them fighting. Keep them backstabbing. Keep them gossiping. Just, you know, keep them, keep them demanding their preferences and debating about music style and programs. Keep them fighting and debating over all minutia of doctrine, Keep them more concerned about being right and winning arguments while I continue to beat the hurting into the dirt. Right? That's what infighting does. And, and we lose sight of our mission. We lose sight of why the Lord has us here. We lose sight of why we, at this, in this period of time, Listen, this period of time is not forever. Your life on earth is not forever. If you trust in Jesus, you've got an eternal life for, for, with him. But your life is limited on this earth. The age of the church is limited on this earth. And we lose sight of it. We say, well, you know, how are we going to do? You're, you're doing the bulletin wrong. You're doing the music wrong. You're doing the kids program wrong. And you're looking at the scripture a little wrong. Because don't you know? And Satan's like, great, because I can continue to cause that little boy to convulse in the dirt. And this is why it's so important to foster peace and unity in the church. 
so important, that we would together focus our energy on our mission, that God has first loved me by His grace, that He has taken me from death to life through His forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit just by me believing and putting my faith in Him, and that I can share that that beautiful good news with others in word and deed and practical service. But it's still a mission that can't happen just in our own power, can it? And, and that's something that this story just seems to reek of, that, 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 that there's this inability of, uh, for broken mankind to fix broken mankind <laughs> apart from him. Jesus goes up on the mountain, and they're a mess. And that's why, like, all our, all our plans and all our, you know, the, the, the social justice causes, I mean, that can be beautiful, and that's important. I will never discredit that. That's important. But apart from doing it with the Lord, in Jesus' name, it's never going to get to the deepest needs of someone's soul. Let's move on with the story. Verses 19 through 27. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long must I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? And I just again note, I, I, I'm of the belief that Jesus never asked a question just for his own knowledge, right? He's, he's doing something with the dad here. He's doing something with the crowd, with the disciples. What are you arguing with him about? How long has this boy been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. Isn't that beautiful how he includes him and his son, right? Take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil or unclean spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. So we say, what's what's the root problem here? And I think Jesus addresses it. He says, Oh, unbelieving generation. Oh, unbelieving generation. He's frustrated with the, the, the ongoing environments of unbelief. And as the story unfolds, we, we see that the, the disciples are included in this. This is the major stifling point 
of ministry that Jesus addresses over and over. We're tempted to say our limitations are set by our limitations in time, our limitations in energy, our limitations in strength, our limitations in money. And Jesus says, here's your greatest limitation, your refusal to believe, specifically in the Lord. And Jesus gives his father a chance to voice his desperation His son's case is incurable, and he's come to Jesus as his final resource. The demon's been destructive. Evil forces are no respecters of age. Um, They prey on on the most vulnerable. The father has watched this evil spirit attempt many times to kill his son. He thought how tired this dad must be. Some of you know that kind of fatigue. Many have experienced children with all kinds of just things that have captured them and how parents struggle and pray and try and rescue and intervene and wait for the next time. And we, can, we see here, and we can make no mistake about it, what the goal of the evil spiritual realm is, right? It's to wreak as much chaos, as much conf- confusion as much damage, as much loss, as much destruction, and as much death as possible, period. You know, people play around sometimes, or we play around with some things that are really inherently evil. (laughs) And the reality is that the evil is here to steal, kill, and destroy. Revelation 12.12 says of Satan that he's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. We forget our time is short. He knows his time is short, right? 1 Peter 5.8 encourages us to be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The Bible does not encourage us, I've said this many times, does not encourage us to be fearful of Satan, fearful of this evil realm, but mindful and active, Right? Resist him, standing firm in in the faith. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, right? It says in Ephesians 6, so that you can take your, what? Stand against the devil's schemes. Because we are, friends, still in a battle. Satan would love nothing better for you to think, nah, that's that's nothing. Worry about your song selection Worry about, you know, how small groups are going. You know, just all the... And I'm not saying that stuff's not important, but worry about, worry about how that person offended you and hold on to that bitterness. That's the stuff Satan loves because we're actually going, on, going in a battle here. But Jesus wins. <laughs> Jesus wins. You're on the winning side. And, and, and the, father, the Father here comes to face-to-face with his own limitations, right? Have you come face-to-face with your own limitations? That's the first step to actually coming to faith in Jesus, right? <laughs> that point where you stop saying, I can do it. I got it covered. All's good. 
I'm strong enough, I'm powerful enough, I'm knowledgeable enough. And you say, oh my goodness, how small I am, how weak I am, how broken I am. Who will rescue me? And then he hits the inability of Jesus' disciples. And we can just imagine that this man's hope for his son is hanging on by a thread. And, and with, with a faith that's barely there. You ever been there? A faith that's barely there. He says, but if you can do anything. We, it's, we can understand the heart of this dad, can't we? If you can do anything. And Jesus responds. I, just, I love this. His words back to him. If you can. <laughs> if you can. If you can. Everything is possible for him who believes. Now, that must not be misconstrued to he who believes gets anything he or she wants, right? The Bible's very clear on that. God is sovereign, we are not. God is infinite, we are finite. Read, read James, James 4.3, 1 John 5.14, our prayers are answered according to the Lord's will. That's the goal, that our heart would be aligned with his will. But what Jesus is doing is he's turning this man, man's attention to the object of his faith. If you can, if you can, if you can. And he's looking for him to understand that with Jesus, there's no limitation. The author Donald English suggests that Jesus is saying, in essence, everything is possible if you have faith in what I can do for you. For again, in the end, our limitations are not time, it's not strength, it's not your budget. It's not the church's budget. It's not how busy we are. What stifles the move of God is our refusal to believe that he's able. And, this, and in turn, this man responds with this, this just beautiful, raw honesty. I, I, just, I love this guy. I don't know his name. He lived 2,000 years ago. And, and how, what a beautiful portrayal of honest faith. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. <laughs> he knows the quality and the quantity of his faith is, is wanting. It always is. You know, the Lord's encouraging you on a journey of faith, and your faith might be growing and growing and growing, but the quality of it and the quantity of it, it's always going to be wanting until we see him face to face. And, and what I love is that Jesus doesn't send him away until he's learned better faith. Well, come back to me when, when the measure and the quality of your faith is purer and greater. Then maybe we can work something out. No, that's not what the Lord does. The Lord takes that imperfect faith and he uses it and he extends his son mercy. Because it's not the measure of our faith that moves mountains. It's the object of our faith, right? Let's get that right. It's not the measure of our faith that moves mountains. It's the object of our faith. 
R. Allen Cole, this is just beautiful. He says, Jesus answers, not according to the poverty of the man's faith, but according to the riches of his grace. Because in the face of Jesus, darkness flees. That's the reality. So that's why it's like, don't get all afraid about that, that spiritual realm that just seems so mysterious and you don't know. Don't be foolish about it, but the reality is Jesus is greater. And in the face of Jesus, darkness flees. And this demon has one last go at the boy, and, 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 but then the demon has to obey, and he flees the boy. Jesus says, don't you ever come back. And the boy is so still that he looks dead. And Mark, again, this is purposeful. Death, resurrection. Mark says, Jesus just comes over and at his touch, hey, right, little, little, boy, little girl that was dead, 12 years old, this little boy looks dead, takes him by the hand, at Jesus' touch, there's life. At the face of Jesus, darkness flees. I thought, what a beautiful example this week. Most of you saw this probably. What a beautiful example of that in a Texas courtroom this past week, right? Where, where this, this young man, 18-year-old uh, Brant Jean, looked at this gal, this, this uh, Amber Geiger, who had killed his brother um, in his own apartment. Guy didn't do anything wrong. And, and he gets up there, this 18-year-old young guy, I'm not going to call him a boy. I mean, that's a young man. That was a leader right there. And he just expresses, I love you. I forgive you. He goes as far to say, I want what's best for you. That's forgiveness, right? I want what's best for you. And then he asks the judge, and apparently he didn't know the cameras were rolling. He says, can I, can I give her a hug? And you see, they pan back, the judge is crying. Yeah, and he, and he embraces this woman who had shot, shot his brother dead. And I just felt like, I was just like sobbing watching that. And I just felt like I could feel the darkness leave the room in that moment, right? You could almost see it. People were walking out of that room saying, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. And you know what that young man did? He did it in Jesus' name. He could do that because he knew what forgiveness was like. He knew what the love of God was like. He knew what the embrace of Jesus that he didn't deserve was like. And in the face of Jesus, darkness flees. That judge was so emboldened that she went back to her chamber. I don't know if you saw this. Went back to her chamber, went up to the, this, this gal, hugged her, and she caught some flack for this. Praise God. I mean, credit to her. And, and said, gave her Bible to this woman. You read this. What you've done is not beyond forgiveness. It's not the politics. It's not politics that are the hope of the world. It, it's, not, it's not by our force and our power and our strength is the hope in the world. It's what happened in that courtroom is the hope of the world. Forgiveness, love, the gospel, in the name of Jesus Christ. Everything is possible for him who believes. Uh, verses 20 and 29. After Jesus had gone, uh, sorry, verses, am I right here? Yes. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, 
why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. And fasting, that's a possibility. Not, that's, some versions have that. Yeah, yeah, some versions have that. That's, it's a question whether that was original or not. Um, but some, I do know some versions have that. So the disciples ask tellingly, um, why couldn't we drive it out? And, and you can almost hear him in, in this. Well, did we use the wrong words? Did we use the wrong technique? And, and it's as if the Lord just says to him, no, you didn't pray. <laughs> you didn't pray. You didn't seek the Lord's face. In this case, that's what you needed to do. And I'll freely admit that there's aspects of the story that are beyond me, but this much is obvious. If I'm ever to expect the powerful move of God, I must first and foremost realize that I am always, in each moment and situation, completely dependent on Him. So, so I can't use yesterday's faith. Right? I can't use last year's prayer life. The mountaintop experience was really important. That, uh, you know, when I went to that retreat a year ago. But that's not what I can bring into the now. I can't use some special formula, some sp specific thing that happened to work a month ago. <laughs> My dependence on God must be now must be fresh, must be anew in every situation. My petition to him must be anew in every situation. I, I've, I've just known a lot of people. I've been guilty of myself sometimes trying to live my walk with God with what happened last week and what happened last month and what happened 10 years ago. And boy, that was great when that, you know, no. And the Lord's like, no, it's here and now. David Garland, the author David Garland suggests that Jesus' comment had less to do with a specific type of prayer versus an ongoing prayerful life. i just read a couple lines that he wrote. He said, The prayer that Jesus has in mind is not some magical inc invocation, but a close and enduring relationship with God. Jesus' positive example reveals that only a life governed by faith and prayer can expel the threat from evil spirits. And he writes later, this vivid account shows that the disciples are just like the rest of us, beset by failure, too ready to engage in arguments, undisciplined in prayer life, and more eager to learn techniques than to take time to walk closely with God. <laughs> it's interesting. Henry Nouwen wrote, we have fallen into the temptation of separating ministry from spirituality, service from prayer, our demons say, we're too busy to pray. We have too many needs to attend to, too many people to respond to, too many wounds to heal. Prayer is a luxury, something to do during a free hour, on a day away from work, or on a retreat. Another commentator noted that the disciples had been debating and not praying. Arguing among ourselves disables, prayer enables.
So if God is calling us to be a prayerful people, that better be the work we're about. You know, and again, this is because of the object of our faith and the object of our prayer, that the one in whom his presence causes people to be overwhelmed with wonder, the one in, uh, in whom in his presence darkness can do nothing but flee and obey his word. Where we find ourselves unable, Jesus is able. And in prayer, that's what prayer does for us. One of the things it does for us, it, it, it helps me f- turn my focus from my strength to his strength, from my wisdom to his wisdom, from my ability to his ability. And then I'm just going to read these last couple of verses and invite Brian up. Um, you know, Jesus now turns his attention to this in- intense teaching time with his disciples and we see here, it's interesting, he's actually purposely trying to get away from the crowds. We see that, that the Christian life of faith is not discipleship only, it's not mission only, but it's this beautiful marriage of both. And then in doing so, Jesus again sings what becomes this recurring chorus for him that the disciples keep scratching their head about. Soon I have to die. Soon I have to rise again. And that's where his victory will be. These last couple of verses, verses 30 through 32, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what it meant and were afraid to ask him about it. My prayer this morning for you and for myself is that we can echo the heart of this Father. That we say, Jesus, I need you moment by moment. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Amen. Brian.